there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not be afraid or dismayed. That promise given thousands of years ago by Moses to Joshua is for you and me today and for all who are willing to follow the Lord. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, telling you a little bit today about the country where I used to work as a missionary. I went to Ecuador in 1952 as a single woman. After about a year and a half, I married another missionary who was working on the other side of the Andes with a different tribe. His name was Jim Elliot. And Jim and I were there for 27 months together as husband and wife. And as many of you know, he was killed in 1956, along with four other American missionaries, by a tribe that my present husband, Lars Grin, and I visited last May. It was on May 21st that Gene Jordan, the son of very dear missionary friends of ours who had been in Ecuador for years, and Gene is now a pilot with Missionary Aviation Fellowship. He flew Lars and me from Quito, the capital of Ecuador, which is over 9,000 feet above sea level, to the Oriente, what they call the eastern jungle, to a little place where there's an airstrip where I had never been. It's called Tonyampadi, and this is where some of the Alca Indians live now. It was the Alcas who killed the five men in 1956. They are now called Waurani. My colleague, when we went back to live with those Indians after the five men were killed, was Rachel Saint. She was the sister of MAF pilot Nate Saint, one of the five who died. Well, Rachel is still working with the Alcas, with the Waurani. She is 80 years old. Perhaps by the time you hear this program, she may be 81. And she has cancer. But she has been there all these years, since 1958, when we went in to live with the Alcas. And she still lives there, and she has a house in Tonyampati. She was not there in her house at the time. She was in Quito. But as we flew in, I recognized immediately one of the Alca women named Dayuma. Dayuma was there when I was there. I have to say I didn't recognize anybody else because I had not been with the Alcas since 1960. So 34 years makes a pretty significant difference in the way people look. Well, before we got to Tonyampati, I was overwhelmed as we flew east from Quito, overwhelmed again with the glory of the Andes Mountains, the moving clouds, the beautiful snow-capped mountain called Cotapaxi, and the green mountain sides and deep velvet valleys. I was overwhelmed thinking of the tremendous privilege that God had given to me to live in such a beautiful country and to see from the air what I had seen many times 
from the ground. We usually traveled from Quito down into the eastern jungle by truck or bus or whatever transportation might be available. And the buses in those days were something quite different from what they are today. But I was thanking the Lord for the tremendous privilege that I had of living in Ecuador as a missionary for 11 years. So when we got to Toñampati, it was pouring rain. And there stood Dayuma, the only familiar face, with a throng of children. Everybody very different now because they had clothes on. When I lived with the Alcas, nobody wore clothes. They wore a piece of string, not a G-string, but just a piece of string around their hips. Some of them who wanted to be very dressed up would sometimes put a piece of string around their upper arm or perhaps around their thigh. But clothes were not necessary in those days, and now that civilization has moved in in force, everybody has clothes, there were dogs there, there were all sorts of wild animal pets like monkeys and parrots and macaws, and instead of having houses with no walls, which is the kind I lived in, they have wooden houses, which are not very pretty, with aluminum roofs instead of thatch not nearly as cool to live under as our thatched roof was. And there are school buildings built by an oil company. And right in the middle of this little clump of houses was a faucet. I couldn't believe my eyes. Apparently, they had found a spring up in a hill, and they'd piped the water down, so people actually have running water. Then I was astounded to see that there were also electric wires going into the houses, electricity, shortwave radios, there were some Quechua women there who were married to Alcas, so it was quite easy for me to communicate with the Quechuas because I had lived with Quechua Indians for eight years and spoke their language far better than I spoke Alca. I had only lived with the Alcas for about two years. Anyway, I was very thankful that the language had come back to me. I wasn't sure how well I'd be able to communicate. Then. My husband, Lars, was very eager to see the Kurarai River and perhaps the beach where the five men had been killed. So in the pouring rain, taking off our shoes, and Lars had to be persuaded to take his off. I don't think he'd ever gone barefoot in his life. He rolled up his trousers, and we slogged through the mud, which was halfway up our calves, to the Kurarai River. Not very far, but it seemed quite far because of the rain and the mud. But the beach where the men were killed has long since gone because of the radical changes that those jungle rivers make as the water rises and falls. So there is no sign whatsoever of the original beach. Many people come to me with stars in their eyes and tell me that they have stood on the very sand where the five men were killed, and I don't want to disillusion them because it's a very moving experience for them, but the truth is that the sand where the five men were killed has long since moved elsewhere. There was at one time a bronze plaque commemorating the death of those men on that beach. The plaque also has long since gone. And the Indians had told me when I visited that beach back in 1960, four years after the men's death, that the bodies would probably have gone down the river because the river had changed so much. All of the men who did the killing who were my friends, I could name them all. I had known the five Indians who had actually speared the missionaries. 
were elsewhere. And my good friends, my best friends among the women also were elsewhere. Word had apparently not reached them that I was coming. I had thought that they knew. At any rate, I learned from those that I did talk to that pieces of the airplane had been found quite recently there in the river. Nate Saint's airplane had not been carried down the river as had the sand and probably the bodies. So they were quite excited about that, and I was glad to hear it. I understand that that plane will probably, the pieces that they have found will probably be taken to California and put in some sort of a museum. The next day, we went to Shandia, which was the station where my husband Jim and I had worked together. Shandia is an area where there are Quechua Indians, and the thing that really blew my mind was that it used to be a three-day walk from the Missionary Aviation Base to Shandia, and we also did have a small airstrip, but air and foot travel were the only methods. Now, to my astonishment, what used to be our airstrip is now a road. So a missionary family drove us directly to Shandia. On the way, we stopped in at a little town called Pano, which had also been a very small mission station, and there's still a church there, and there were people in the church, and they wanted me to give a little testimony. There were many tears, and people who told me how Jim Elliott's life had changed theirs. Our guide that day was my friend Antuka, who used to be my house girl. She is now a cook in the HCJB hospital. HCJB is a shortwave station, missionary radio station in Ecuador, and they have founded several hospitals. And my friend Antuka, a Quechua Indian woman, is a cook in that hospital. So she had been our guide that day and gone with us in the car so that we could find Shandia. And again, it was pouring rain, deep mud. There was a huge crowd of Indians by the school that Jim Elliott had begun building, and they wailed and cried, and there were tears and hugs. It is the custom among the Quechua Indians to do what I would call a death wail. It's the ritualistic wailing that they do when someone dies or when they meet the relative of someone who has died. So it was in memory of Jim, I suppose, that they threw their arms around me and wailed and howled, and the death wail is actually a recital of all the things that they are missing. My husband, Lars, stood there just dumbfounded, not knowing what was going on. And there were tears and hugs. And again, because of the rain, we slogged through the mud, waded down what was left of the airstrip to the brink of the Atung Yaku, the big river that runs into the Amazon. And from there, along a forest trail that on that day was really just a stream, water was pouring down the trail, and then up to the house that my husband Jim had built. Now, I'm going to tell you more about the visit to that house tomorrow. That was, for me, by far the most poignant part of the trip. This is your friend. Elizabeth Elliott, continuing my story today about a visit that my husband Lars Grin and I made to Ecuador last May.
I told about visiting the Alka Indians, the people who had killed my husband Jim Elliott and four other men back in 1956. In 1958, I had gone in to live with the Alkas along with Rachel Saint, the sister of the pilot who had also been killed, and my little daughter, Valerie, who was then three years old. And Valerie and I had lived with the Alkas for two years before going back to work again with the Quichuas. So that was an amazing experience to see some of those Alkas and to talk with them. But then the most poignant part of our trip to Ecuador was the visit to the house in Shandia, which Jim Elliott had built. When he and I were married, we were in a little place called Puyupungu for five, for uh, about, uh, let's see, it was about nine months, I guess. Five of those months, we lived in a leaky tent, and four of those months, we lived in a palm-thatched house. And then we moved to Shandia, where Jim began the building of quite a civilized house, one with a concrete floor and concrete walls up to the windowsill level, boards from there on up, and an aluminum roof. We had probably the only stone fireplace in the whole eastern jungle of Ecuador. So Lars and I were driven to Shandia by a very kind missionary family, and I couldn't believe the fact that what used to be our airstrip was now a road. We slogged through the jungle in the mud up to the house, which has now become, shall we say, a shambles. It still stands. The walls and the roof and the floors are still there. The stone fireplace had been badly uh, skewed, sort of knocked sideways by an earthquake some years ago, but it's still standing. And there are Indians living in the house. These are people that I had known very well. So, of course, they welcomed us into the house, which now was filthy. All the built-in drawers had long since been discarded. The doors on the cabinets had been torn off. Many other things had disappeared, and all of the furniture was gone. Of course, this didn't bother the Indians in the least. They don't need furniture. They sit on the floor or on little stools that they make. But these were Christian Indians whom we had known. And again, we had to go through the death whale routine. I was hugged and wept on and cried about, and uh, the death whale, which is something that the Indians normally do when they meet someone who has been bereaved, they carried on for quite a while to Lars's astonishment. And then they began to tell me the history of everything that had happened since I had left that house in 1963. A long time had elapsed. It just seemed almost surreal to be in a place like that, a very dark jungle day, pouring rain, wind, the house a shambles, the Indians howling, and then to top it all off, as we were standing there and they were giving me account of everything that had happened, there suddenly was a scream, a blood-curdling scream, and a crash, and one of the women fell to the floor and was immediately leaped upon by three men. Of course, I had no idea what was happening. It turned out that she is an epileptic, and this was not a surprise to them. But someone explained to me that when she gets emotionally upset, this is what usually happens. So the three men just held her in order to keep her from thrashing 
and hurting herself. Then for a long time, I stood while they told me sad tales of feuds between the believers. Some of them had actually threatened the people who are living in our house with death threats because they said they had no business being there. It should have been ours. But there was one girl who told me that I had saved her life from a snake bite. I must confess I had no recollection of that. But I was thinking over how little I accomplished as a missionary. My memory is not very good anyway, but as I look back, I do have memories of failures. And the dark clouds and the rain and the state of the house just all combined to make me feel very sad. What had been a park, we had a beautiful lawn and pineapple plants and papaya trees and a gorgeous view of the Atunyaku, the big river that flows into the Amazon. What had been a park was now a jungle. And I had thoughts of what a poor missionary I had been. And I was overwhelmed with a longing to return and do it right. But we don't have that privilege, do we? And I think of an old gospel hymn, the vain regrets of yesterday have vanished through God's pardoning grace. My guilty sins have passed away and joy has come to take its place. My yesterdays, so dark with shame. Now, that, that's an exaggeration. I'm not saying that my missionary days were dark with shame. But God has redeemed many of my failures, I'm sure. And it was wonderful to hear the testimonies of people who had been blessed. Seeing the state of the house and the area around it, I thought of the hymn, Abide With Me, that has a stanza that says, Change and decay in all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. And that was my prayer. My greatest prayer was that the Lord would restore love between those Christians. We had a group of over 50 baptized believers, people who had been baptized by Jim just within the about a year and a half that he had lived there in Shandia. He and Pete Fleming, another one of the five men who had been killed, and Ed McCulley had all had a part in leading those Indians to the Lord and teaching them and baptizing them. And so many of them are still there, but as I mentioned, they don't exhibit the love, which is supposed to be the most visible sign of the reality of our Christian faith. You remember the words of Scripture that the non-believers will look at the believers and say, behold how they love one another. I don't think there are very many that would be able to say that today about the Indians who had claimed to be Christians. I was sorry about that. I think of Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. And I would ask your prayers for the Indians of Shandia. That's spelled S-H-A-N-D-I-A. And this is my prayer for them. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. There are times when 
we feel as though all our work has been in vain. And there are thousands of God's faithful servants who have felt that. And the Lord reminds us then that our labor in the Lord is never in vain. We are to stand firm, never be tired in the work of the Lord, because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, regardless what the visible results may be. Janet Erskine Stewart has written some words which encourage me tremendously, using as her text the psalmist's words, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. She says, it is good that we should have to submit to what we do not understand. It teaches us the laws of faith and hope. It is good that we should have to do what we should rather not in circumstances not of our choice. It is good that there should be always something to prick us on, something to remind us that we are in an enemy's country, we belong to a marching column. It is good that every creature we lean upon should fail or disappoint us. It is good that we should meet with checks and failures in what we undertake to keep us humble and prayerful. All these things belong to sowing in tears. And then she adds this, God seems to have laid out the order of things in his church not for a general and brilliant triumph, but for the hidden sanctification of the individual souls which compose it. I'll read that again. God seems to have laid out the order of things in his church, not for a general and brilliant triumph, but for the hidden sanctification of the individual souls which compose it. So would you pray for the individual sanctification of my Quechua friends in Shandia. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, continuing my story about Lars and my visit to Ecuador in May of 1994. It was a sentimental journey for me. It was certainly Lars's first trip to Ecuador. And when we visited the house in Shandia, where Jim and I had worked together until Jim was killed, Lars wanted to know everything. He wanted to know, now, which was your room? And I showed him this was our bedroom, this was Valerie's bedroom, here was our guest room, and here was another guest room, which we sometimes used for a little dispensary. This is where we gave the worm medicine and the penicillin shots and talked with the Indians. Here's the place where my shortwave radio was when I received the news that Jim and four other missionaries had been killed by the Alka Indians in January of 1956. And here's the door, the front door, out of which Jim walked at the time when he was about to leave for the Alkas. And as I walked out the door after him, no, I guess I must have walked out the door in front of him, and then I remember how he slammed the door, never looked back, and just strode with such eagerness and enthusiasm down that jungle trail toward the airstrip. And I thought to myself, I wonder if it crosses Jim's mind that he may never open that door again. This is the door, I said to Lars. It shows you what sort of a man Lars is. 
He's big enough to hear about my first husband, Jim Elliott, and my second husband, Addison Leach, who died of cancer, big enough to actually want me to put up a triptych frame in the living room with the pictures of all three of my husbands, something I would never have dreamed of doing. Another time later on in, during that visit to Ecuador, we went to visit the, th the first tribe that I had worked with before I married Jim Elliott. Jim and I went to Ecuador singly. He went to the eastern jungle to work with the Quechua tribe, and I went to the western jungle to work with a tribe called the Colorados. A young missionary woman who had worked with the Colorado Indians, and I should stop here and explain that those of you who don't speak Spanish might not know that Colorado, pronounced Colorado in Spanish, simply means red. And these Indians were named because they painted themselves red from head to toe. It used to take us about 10 hours in a banana truck to get from Quito to Santo Domingo de los Colorados, and then about four hours by horseback through a jungle trail to get to the little clearing where we lived when we were working with those Indians, we being myself and two British women, all of us single at that time. Now you can drive from Quito to Santo Domingo in about, I think it was about three or three and a half hours. The road is not to be compared with the old one. The scenery is spectacular. You go up from Quito to about 10,000 feet and then drop down to about 1,000 feet, and the jungle is no more. What was a town of a few thousand people is now a town of 200,000, and that four-hour horseback trip through a jungle trail was done in about 10 minutes on a bumpy road. And there we visited my former colleague, Doreen and her husband, Abdon Villarreal. Doreen is from Birmingham, England, and she and I had worked together along with Barbara Edwards, and then Doreen married an Ecuadorian man named Abdon Villarreal, and he is a very remarkable man, a Christian, and speaks very good English. They have a very civilized house. They had a guest room. We actually had a private bath. I just was in a state of absolute shock at the drastic changes. We had, of course, no facilities, no plumbing, and no electricity back in my day. Whenever I think of my friend Doreen, I think of stick-to-itiveness. Doreen was a woman of perseverance and constancy, and she is still there. I think she's about 75 now, and she and Abdon are still working with the Colorados. And many of you have prayed for them. I've talked about Doreen before on my programs. I've been amazed at the number of people who have written to tell me that they are praying for them. And one of them was a prisoner. And I took that letter, in case you who wrote that letter are listening, I took your letter to Doreen and Abdon. They could not believe their eyes that these unknown people in the States, including one inmate of a prison, is praying for them. So please continue to pray. To them, that was just almost unbelievable, and it brought tears to their eyes. As I said, the jungle had changed so much that I was in a state of shock practically the whole time. There just wasn't a hint of anything that was originally there. As we drove down the road 
further, Abdon pointed out over there, he said, if you see that telephone pole over there, that's about where your house used to be. Now there's no jungle. It's all pastures and towns and roads and houses. But I thought of a hymn, This is My Father's World. That brings me such comfort to realize every inch of this belongs to God. And God allows men to do what they do to his world. He permits man to change, revise, restructure, redesign, manicure, rearrange, destroy, demolish, beautify, uglify, and carefully tend or neglect and exploit as he will. Man marks the earth with ruin, wrote, who was it? I've forgotten. Um, There's a poem that begins, roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean roll. A thousand ships sweep over thee in vain. Man marks the earth with ruin. His control stops with the shore. Well, that was written a long time ago because man's control doesn't stop with the shore anymore, does it? When you consider what we've done to the oceans and the waterways. But God allows that. And the great hope is that there will be a new earth fashioned according to his perfect wisdom and self-giving love. There will be a new earth. We have hope. God has given us hope. In the afternoon, Doreen and Abdone drove us in their new pickup truck. Also, that had been provided by Christians in the States and in England, and they were thrilled with the expansion of their outreach that was possible because of having this truck. They drove us to the home of Primitivo, one of the leading Colorados and a believer. I wasn't prepared for the civilization that we found after we walked about 15 minutes through a jungle trail from the road. Here was a house with electricity. His wife, who was wearing a blouse and a skirt, when I used to work with the Colorados, the women wore only skirts. She was playing hymns on a keyboard by ear. Yes, they had electricity, a refrigerator, a gas stove, two bicycles. And we asked, how do you get your bicycles in here? Well, we have to carry them, they said. It was a muddy trail up and uphill and down dale and across a few streams to get to their house. They have two sewing machines. Primitivo runs a tailoring shop. He makes trousers and shirts and showed us very proudly some of his products. I saw an electric blender in the kitchen, and in the living room there were four armchairs lined up in a row, and a sofa, and, are you ready for this, a TV. I wasn't ready for it. An office for translation work. Primitivo is the primary translator of the Bible into the Colorado language. The New Testament has been translated, and he is working on the Old Testament with missionaries who are there. Primitivo wears a T-shirt, well-tailored pants. The men used to wear just a, a mini skirt. Primitivo has a traditional hairdo, however, which is quite spectacular. They plaster their hair very thickly with Vaseline mixed with a red dye and then they bring it out into a sort of a peak in the front so that it looks kind of like a baseball cap, bright red with the coloring that used to be used. Some of you older women will remember 
for coloring margarine. We used to buy margarine in a white block, and then it had to be colored with this red dye that the Colorados use for their hairdos. That was the only vestige of the original Colorado costume as I used to remember it. Do pray for the Colorado church. Pray also for the translation work that Primitivo is doing. Pray for Doreen and Abdon, whose four children are all grown up and now are in England. And I do ask you to pray for the Quichuas and the Alcas. I know it's very confusing, and if you can't remember these names, and I know you wouldn't know how to spell them, but just remember that there were three tribes that I worked with in Ecuador. I believe there are perhaps seven or eight tribes altogether in Ecuador, so it certainly wouldn't hurt to pray for all of them. There has been an astonishing and very widespread revival among the mountain Quechuas. I never worked with mountain Quechuas, but I did do a conference one time, spoke for a very small group, a little handful of believers, maybe 40 or 50. And since then, there have been conversions, I think, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. So God has done a wonderful work there. But pray for the Quechuas, the Alcas, and the Colorados, and those who work with them. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliott. I want to give you today a few reflections about our trip to Ecuador in May of 1994. My husband Lars and I made what for me was a sentimental journey. For him, it was a fascinating glimpse into the country where I spent 11 years as a missionary between 1952 and 1963. As I reflect back on those 11 years, I wouldn't take any amount of billions in exchange for the privilege, the joy that it was. I, I loved my work there. I loved the country. I loved the people. But things did not turn out the way I expected them to. I fully expected to be a jungle missionary for the rest of my life. And here I am sitting in a studio doing radio program at the moment. So this reminds me that the will of God is always discoverable and it is always doable. Now let me emphasize that. For those of you who may be puzzled about the will of God, how will I find it? Will I be able to do it? It is always discoverable the promise is, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. That's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He will direct your paths. If you really want to do his will, that's the condition, of course. And it is always doable. Sometimes we imagine that we can't accomplish the will of God because of our circumstances or somebody else preventing us from doing it. It's not true. We can always do the will of God. You know, when Paul wanted to preach the gospel, he was imprisoned. Was he prevented from doing the will of God? No. 
He was prevented from preaching the gospel as he thought he was going to, but God gave him a different assignment once he was put into prison. And it was there that he wrote several of his most beautiful epistles. He had a testimony to those guards, and he was doing the will of God moment by moment. The chains, the guards, and the prison walls did not prevent his doing the will of God. So the will of God is always discoverable, it's always doable, but it is always very different in its working out than we imagine. At least, so it has been in my experience. The shepherd promises to lead us in paths of righteousness. The shepherd leads the sheep. It's his business to see that the sheep get into the right paths and to the right pastures and to carry them safely through the valley of the shadow of death. And he leads us in paths of righteousness, not for my name's sake, but for his name's sake. But his leading always, sooner or later, involves suffering, sacrifice, and servanthood. Don't be surprised if in your present situation you suffer You are required to make sacrifices that you hadn't counted on, and you are given opportunities to be a servant. And the greatest test of our willingness to be a servant is our reaction when somebody treats us like one. Think about that. The greatest revelation of the sincerity of our declared willingness to be a servant is when someone treats us like a servant. So the will of God is always different than we imagine, and it is always bigger. And this I believe with all my heart, and I want to shout it from the housetops, it is always unspeakably more glorious than we could ever have imagined. Ultimately, it is always more glorious than we could ever have imagined. Ask those who have followed the shepherd. I certainly expected to be a jungle missionary for the rest of my life, just as I expected to be Mrs. P. James Elliott for the rest of my life. After I married Jim, I remember within minutes after the ceremony, I thought to myself, till death us do part. That's a long time. Isn't it wonderful that I am married to this man and nothing but death can ever separate us, and that seemed as though it would be a very long way down the future. It was 27 months later, so the will of God was very different from what I imagined. When Jim died, I was sure that I would never marry again because I couldn't imagine loving anyone as I had loved Jim. Even less could I imagine anyone wanting to marry me because I had thought it was a real miracle that I got married the first time. So I have not been Mrs. P. James Elliott all the rest of my life. For a while, I was Mrs. Addison Leach, and now I am Mrs. Lars Grin. And I use Elizabeth Elliott only for uh, convenience because it's my pen name, and my publishers would not be very happy if I kept changing the name under which I began writing books. The Lord gave me the privilege of being a Bible translator for a very short time. But the results of that Bible translation work, again, were very different from what I had imagined. 
None of it is in use today. But the Bible says, when he putteth forth his sheep, he goeth before. When the shepherd puts forth his sheep, he goes in front of them. And it's one day at a time, one step at a time. I mentioned the other day the awful sense of my own inadequacy as a missionary, which almost overwhelmed me as I was visiting the Quechua Indians with whom I had spent eight years. A prayer of St. Augustine has encouraged me, and this is my own modern English version of the old English of the translation that I have in my library. I know, Lord, and I humbly acknowledge that I myself am utterly unworthy of your love. But I am also sure that you are altogether worthy of my love. I am not good enough to serve you, but you have a right to the best service I can pay. Please impart to me your own goodness in place of my unworthiness. Help me to cease from sin as you want me to do, and enable me to serve you as I ought. Help me to guard and control myself, to begin and finish my course, so that when life's race is run, I may sleep in peace and rest in you. Be with me, Lord, to the end. Make my rest perfect security, and that security a happy eternity. I want to mention four books that relate to my missionary experience. The first one is Through Gates of Splendor, which tells the story of five men who were killed by Alka Indians in 1956, one of whom was my husband Jim. The second one is the biography of my husband Jim. It's called Shadow of the Almighty. Perhaps the most important book that I've written because literally hundreds of men especially have told me that no book outside of the Bible has so profoundly influenced their lives. Then there's The Savage, My Kinsman, telling the story of my living with the Alka Indians after the killing of my husband and these strange ashes. So you can call Gateway to Joy if you're interested in any of these books. And I would like to read to you just a piece of the epilogue of the book, The Savage, My Kinsman, since it's along this subject of God's will and how different it may be. We must not proceed from our own notions of God's action. It will appear sometimes that he has not acted. But we must look clearly and unflinchingly at what happens and seek to understand it through the revelation of God in Christ. His life on earth had a most inauspicious beginning. There was the scandal of the virgin birth, the humiliation of the stable, the announcement not to village officials, but to uncouth shepherds. A baby was born, a savior and king. But hundreds of babies were murdered because of that birth. His public ministry, surely no tour of triumph, no thundering success story, led not to stardom, but to crucifixion. Multitudes followed him but most of them wanted what they could get out of him. And in the end, all his disciples fled. Yet out of this seeming weakness and failure, out of his very humbling to death, what 
exaltation and what glory. For the will of God is not a quantitative thing, static and measurable. The sovereign God moves in mysterious relation to the freedom of man's will. We can demand no instant reversals. Things must be worked out according to a divine design and timetable. Sometimes the light rises excruciatingly slowly. The kingdom of God is like leaven and seed, things which work silently, secretly, slowly. But there is in them an incalculable, transforming power. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, reflecting again today on a trip to Ecuador that my husband Lars and I made in May of 1994. I've been talking about how differently things turned out in my missionary work than I had expected. Some of you have heard me tell the story of losing all of the language material that I had collected when I spent a year working with the Colorado Indians of the Western jungle before I married Jim Elliott. All of the language materials, which in those days were not copied because there were no copying machines and we had no tape recorders, they were all in one suitcase and that suitcase was stolen from the top of a banana truck, which was our method of transportation in certain areas back in those days. That was just one experience in which I had to face calmly and collectedly the difference between my notions of what God is supposed to do and what God actually does. I began then to seek to grasp the tremendous truth of the sovereignty of God. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother and sister, in his hands. Nothing ever slips. He never makes a mistake. His attention is never distracted. This verse that I've been using at the beginning of my programs is one we need to remember. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. Does it feel like it? Very often it doesn't. What's it got to do with feelings? Here's the word, the unchangeable, totally reliable word. He will be with you. He will not fail you. Does it seem as though he has failed you at times? It's only because our vision is very dim. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. He will not forsake you. Do not be afraid or dismayed. I had the privilege of seeing my old friend Rachel Saint in Quito. Rachel and I had gone together, along with my little daughter Valerie, to live with the Indians who were then called Aucas and today are called Waurani, the Indians who had killed my husband Jim and Rachel's brother, Nate Saint. She and I lived there together for two years, and Rachel has been there with the Alcas more or less since, ever since then. And as I mentioned the other day, she is 80 years old. She does have cancer, and she needs your prayers. But Rachel is a faithful soul, and I was glad to renew our acquaintance. We had not seen each other since her sister-in-law Marge's 
Marge Saint's wedding to Abe Vanderpoy, which I think was in 1966 or 67. So it was good to renew that acquaintance. I think of how different the will of God is from our own notions. We must remember that there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of this world, there is flesh, and in the kingdom of God, there is spirit. This world's kingdom is earthly. God's kingdom is heavenly. This world perishes. God's world lasts forever. Here, there is darkness. In God's kingdom, there's nothing but light. And in God himself, the Bible says, there is no darkness at all. And in the original language, that is a far more powerful statement than it is possible to translate into English. Absolutely no darkness whatsoever. In this world, there is evil. In God's world, truth. This world is a visible world. God's world, to us, is so far invisible. Everything in this world is shakable, as you folks who have experienced an earthquake can certainly testify. Nothing in God's kingdom is shakable. It is unshakable. And God has to shake us up. Everything that is shakable, sooner or later, has to be shaken in order that God may get our attention and fasten it on the things which are unshakable. I speak to you who are feeling greatly disappointed today, feeling as though God has let you down. May I encourage you, in the name of Jesus, to set your sights higher. Realize that nothing can happen to you that separates you from the love of God. The Apostle Paul wrote a beautiful, well, I would call it a hymn of praise in Romans, the eighth chapter. Let me read that to you. Speaking of this unfailing sovereignty of God, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died? More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We must realize that we are natural and God is supernatural. And God wants to do a supernatural work of grace in these natural personalities of ours. Natural man is made for supernatural ends, and he is endowed with two supernatural means, grace and revelation. Grace and revelation are the supernatural means by which God wants to transform us. Let's not try to deal with things as the world would deal with them. I suppose one of the painful things that all of us Christians have to put up with from time to time is the challenge of unbelief that comes to us from non-Christian friends who say, well, if your God is so great and so trustworthy, why does he allow things like this to happen? And of course, there isn't any way to prove anything to them. There's no way to explain grace and revelation. They are not explicable. We are not to try to deal with things as the world would deal with them without revelation and grace. Often we act, and letters that I receive from my radio listeners reveal that many are acting and thinking as though there were no other reference point in the world. But we do have a totally different reference point. I read a list not long ago of some of the problems that people write to me about and with which they seem to be dealing as though there were no other reference point than this world, forgetting about revelation and grace. For example, the problem of forgiveness. How do we forgive people? I have HIV, somebody wrote, somebody else with MS, somebody whose husband is a drunk, um, somebody with Lou Gehrig's disease, an ex-lesbian who told me of the sorrows of what it was like to be a lesbian and of her joy in having been delivered from that sinful lifestyle. When we're disappointed with the way God does things, we need to think about that difficult question of why God says no to our prayers. There is a great mystery here, and I'm not going to sort it out for you, but there are some scriptural reasons which are very clear as to why God says no to our prayers. One is for the sake of others. There are thousands of people who have been blessed and helped through the testimony of five men who died in Ecuador in 1956. One small incident at the time, but with tremendous ramifications. If our prayers, we wives who had prayed that God would bring our husbands back safely, had been answered with a yes, those people would not have been blessed as they were. So for the sake of others, God says no. For his glory among his people, God said no to Moses' plea to be allowed to go into the promised land because Moses had disobeyed and had not honored God's glory. And so God said no to his prayers. Sometimes he says no because he has something better. He will never give us a scorpion instead of an egg. Sometimes what we think looks good, like an egg, 
God knows, is a scorpion. And that's a verse from the Bible, Luke eleven twelve. And there are three more reasons which we don't have time for today. But I do want to remind you that God is faithful, and he is in charge, and he's worth trusting. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And we'll keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.